0: Welcome to Stallside Podcast. Bart, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you today? I'm great, thanks. Really looking forward to today's show. We have uh, Dr. Ryan Ferris on. Dr. Ryan Ferris,
1: um, big name in the biofilm, you know, he's, he's a theogenologist and, um, you know, the, the biofilm word kind of emerged about the time he came into practice and he really took to it and has done a lot of great research on
0: getting mares pregnant and eliminating biofilm. Yeah, it's, it's been a bit of a buzzword, but when you put it in context with some of these problems mares, is actually a natural progression of what these bacteria are trying to do because right. they're, there trying to make a living. <laughs> right. And so this is part of fighting back against the treatments that yep. people use. And so, yeah, you start to wonder sometimes how clever these bacteria are and they're actually plotting against us. No. And,
1: and understanding that, that that's there, we didn't even know it was there before. And now yep. we, we've got some tools
0: yep. to take it's care of it. It's just mother nature at work, but we just have to undo a bit of that work. That's right. I'm excited to talk to Dr. Ferris today and, and uh, let's get him in. Yeah. Absolutely. So this week on Stallside, we're talking to Dr. Ryan Ferris from Summit Equine in Oregon about his research into biofilm in the uterus of the mare. Dr. Ferris, welcome to Stallside.
2: Thank you for having me. It's it's wonderful to be here.
1: Yeah, it's good to have you with us today. We really appreciate it, and uh, looking forward to our discussion.
2: Yeah.
0: So Ryan, tell us a bit about yourself.
2: Well, I uh, grew up in Washington. Um, was really a dairy practitioner to start with. Um, went to vet school hoping to be a dairy practitioner. Um, actually, fell in love with embryos while I was in vet school. And um, one of my mentors in the dairy industry ran Pilchuck Veterinary Hospital in Seattle, Washington, or outside of Seattle, Washington. And he goes, "You like embryos too much. You shouldn't be palpating cows the rest of your life." And he encouraged me to come up to Pilchuk for a couple of weeks between my second and third year of vet school um, and get some exposure to what a horse actually is. Up until that point, I'd really never touched a horse in my, my career and worked with the, the clinicians there at Pilchuck. And then OEPS was going on at that time. And I had the opportunity to come out to Lexington, Kentucky and met Dr. Tom Little. At, uh, he was at Gainesway at that point. And at that moment, I went, I want to be him. Um, and that ability of large scale kind of commercial medicine, um, on an individual case basis, that was exactly what I was hoping to have been in, in the dairy industry that was going away and switched completely at that point between second and third year of vet school of going, never touched a horse in my life to, to, okay, I'm going to do this. And following vet school, I did an internship in Ocala, Florida, Equine Medical Center of Ocala. Um, I made some great connections there. They helped me get a residency at Colorado State University um, for theriogenology. I finished that up in 2010, and then stayed on as a faculty member till 2018, um, when my wife and I moved up here to Oregon and established Summit Equine, and have been in private practice since that time.
0: You've been a busy man. Yes, you have.
2: Somewhat, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, do I, anyone listening to this that goes. Boy, you have to have grown up with horses and understand everything about them to be, you know, an equine veterinarian. I'll tell you, it's completely wrong. Um, I'm going to brag about myself, but I get invited all over the world to give talks on equine reproduction. And until my second year of vet school, I never I literally never touched a horse.
1: Fell in love with embryos. That's my favorite line from the uh from the boat, <laughs> yeah. the <opening> there. <laughs> I was
0: going to say, I will wait for the Hallmark mini series on that one. I fell in love with an embryo. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <Right>. <laughs> but so,
0: uh, uh, yeah.
1: but Tom Little, great guy, and uh, you know that's a, that's a good place to to start because he, he he is kind of iconic in the industry and did a was a very gentle gentleman person and yeah. Just yeah.
0: great guy. Yeah, no, no wasted movements. Yeah. Model of efficiency. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Um, we're here today to talk about biofilm, and that's something um, that you have had quite the uh, impact on our understanding of biofilm and the mayor's uterus. So um, tell us what it is, what it does, and how we should try to deal with it.
2: Yeah, so biofilm is is an interesting thought process. And and I got involved with it early in my career. Um, and I guess my exposure to it early in my career. Um, Michelle LeBlanc was really, I think, the first one who brought the word biofilm to equine reproduction and and brought in all sorts of specialists from human medicine and whatnot to discuss what is biofilm in other species. But, but there was really almost no data in the horse of what is this. And and what can it be? And we're all struggling to try to understand what is biofilm. And, you know, sometimes you get those situations where you're in the perfect spot at the right time. So, you know, new faculty member at Colorado State, and you're supposed to go to all these meetings. And one of them was a, a new faculty luncheon. And you sit down at this table and this guy's sitting next to me and, and go, hi, I'm Ryan. And he goes, hi, I'm Brad. And what do you do? Well, I'm a microbiologist. Okay. What do you do? I study biofilm. And I went, "Huh, that's interesting we We talk about biofilm in clinical practice all the time, but we have no under, no idea really what it is and And over the course of about two hours there at this new faculty luncheon, we wrote out a couple potential projects and grant submissions and and things like that that could be accomplished, and that started a a multi year set of projects looking at what is biofilm so." so that's kind of how it all started to put some history behind of, of my involvement in there for for those listening so biofilm is is this unique we think about bacteria mostly as a free floating state and these bacteria are just little individual bacteria really all they're doing is looking for food and the ability to multiply that's that's really it um but in the biofilm state it's almost like these bacteria start coming together and through signaling pathways between the bacteria, they start working together. And the most important comments for that is is that when they start working together, um, they secrete some exopolysaccharides. There's complete genetic change in these bacteria. Um, Certain bacteria like E. coli um, have the ability to move. Um, They actually lose that complete ability when they're in the biofilm state. So when when they form a biofilm, they're completely committed to this community of bacteria to survive. And clinically, we care about this because these bacteria become antibiotic tolerant, and they start being able to avoid the host immune system quite readily. So they can. So once this infection moves from the acute phase to the chronic phase, that chronic phase probably does involve a biofilm to some extent. And that's what can make those chronic infections quite difficult to treat is this antibiotic tolerance that becomes present and the avoidance from the host immune system. So that's kind of what we're all, what we're all battling on a day to day basis. And if we go to the screen share option here, so this is the inside of a mare's uterus. Um, one of the initial projects we, we looked at was what does biofilm look like in, in endometritis? So, we took kind of a unique approach to this Of we took pseudomonas isolated from clinical cases we modified those bacteria to express the luciferase gene which will become important in the next couple images and what that really means is these bacteria glow in the dark so we can actually track them we then inoculated mares with with this bacteria um allowed that infection to establish itself and then removed the mare's uterus and and evaluated it and Partly we're just trying to figure out where does where do these bacteria go? So we end up with these, these plaques on the surface of the, of the endometrium, um, as you can see here. And this one here, you can kind of see more clearly. So to orientate you here on the left, this is the maris cervix. We have the uterine body. We have one horn tip and the other horn tip. And where we're seeing this blue, and especially where we're seeing the green and the red, these are the higher colony forming unit um, of of areas of bacteria. So what we see is that when these bacteria move into a biofilm state, it's not as much back here in the uterine body, but more up in the the base of the horns and extending up into the horns as compared to um, back in the uterine body. So sometimes this comes up into play when thinking about diagnostics for mares, um, especially mares with chronic infections, because if you take a double guarded swab from this mare that's mostly gonna take a sample back here in the uterine body, you can see there's very little luminescence present. So there's there's not bacteria present. So you're probably gonna get a false negative sample on your swab. And that's where we see um, where people have described using things like low volume lavages to help um, increase our odds of, of detecting these infections because we're getting fluid up into these horn tips, picking up some of this bacteria and being able to isolate it. And now we even move beyond uh, doing low volume lavages, but putting products into the uterus before culturing to help stimulate growth of some of these bacteria. Um, some of those agents would be uh, things like acetylcysteine, a nice study done on that um, in the last few years showing that infusion of acetylcysteine will help break up some of this biofilm material, allow you to isolate bacteria um, that previously would have had a false negative sample. If we dig a little deeper into what does this this material look like. This is a biopsy sample from those those mares. So we have our endometrial surface here, our columnar epithelium, and then here's this adherent material on the surface. And when you hear the word biofilm, you think of billion at least my mind goes to we're thinking of billions of bacteria coating the entire uterus. And that's that's not really the case. That's that was one of the the take-home messages from our our studies was that these are small little pinpoint groups of bacteria um, made up within this this adherent material. Most of this is host tissue. So you can see that this adherent material, here's a chunk of of endometrium or columnar epithelium right inside of it. It has white blood cells in it, and majority of it is going to be host material. Now, this is some looking at at these samples, these biopsy samples from these mares um, using immunohistochemistry. So we uh, co-localized a exopolysaccharide that pseudomonas secretes. So this confirms that the bacteria we're detecting are actually in a bio, surrounded by a biofilm, and then uh, a, an anti pseudomonas specific antibody. So this is actually deeper down in the glands, and you can see these are small little clumps of bacteria, not billions of bacteria, like one would think. As we were going through this project, our, our colleagues asked us, um, so what are we gonna fix these tissues in? And it was a, a great question, and we go, I don't know. Um, we fixed most of our, our samples in formalin. And, and he goes, well, you better have some backup plans because who knows if that actually maintains that biofilm matrix. So we used uh, Bouins and a few other solutions to fix all of our samples, and, and one of the biggest take-home messages from this initial project was that um, the formalin actually breaks up that adherent material on the surface of the endometrium, and it's washed away during the tissue processing. So. With that, here you can see on the right, the formalin fixed tissue, no adherent material. It had adherent material prior to putting it into this sample that we could see visually. And if you look up here in the top right corner, you can see that the bioluminescence of those bacteria. So we knew there were bacteria and adherent material on this tissue sample before we fixed it in formalin, but it's gone. But when we put that sample in Buen's solution, it's able to maintain that architecture. So uh, another clinical take-home message would be is fix your samples in buin's solution, um, especially your endometrial biopsy samples. It'll allow you to have the chance to see this adherent material on the surface and potentially make a diagnosis of a biofilm-associated infection. So so Dr. Barber, Dr. Morrissey, any questions you have for me so far on, on biofilms?
1: Well, just from that... Um... From that, you know the picture you showed. Those those colonies are fairly isolated. The chance of picking that up, even on a on a biopsy, is going to be fairly low, right?
2: It is. It's going to give you a a low chance of picking up that sample. But I guess my hope always is is that when I do take a a sample from that adherent material, I'd like to be able to detect it on biopsy if it's actually present. So while that's going to be a low chance, when it is there, I want it.
1: So if you have a, a mare that's chronically infected and and now she's developed this biofilm and and th- that straightens out some things that those bacteria are in there they're in the apartment complex they live there they stay there does does the mare react different to that than she would a widespread infection is it is your cytology changed is it is it different than it would be if she had a a, a more diffuse infection
2: yeah it. Definitely is. And if you go back to, to some of the work um, your guys' uh, reproduction team published this uh, many years ago, but showing that um, a lot of our gram-negative organisms have negative cytologies. There's no inflammatory cells on in cytology, but if you look at the outcome of the breeding results of those mares, pregnancy rates are impacted even with just a positive culture and a negative psychology, especially with your gram-negative organisms. And when we think about biofilm, our gram-negative organisms are the ones who are, are probably the most profound biofilm-associated um, bacteria. And so with that, when you think about these mares, these bacteria... I'm going to go back here a couple slides. So with these little plaques and whatnot on the surface, they don't want to cause a lot of inflammation, right? They really want to kind of be camouflaged by this coding of, of host epithelial cells that are present and just hang out. Um, there's not a lot of replication that's actually happening in these communities of bacteria as we study them. Um, it's relatively at a low level. So it's going to kind of cause a smoldering infection, if you will, not a an overt infection. So I would suspect that most mares with a biofilm associated infection will have a normal cytology or be a very low grade score.
1: Okay, then then, then the next question that, that comes out of that is, are some of these mares getting pregnant? Could this can be contributing to our early embryonic loss?
2: It's a great question. We don't know the answer to that, that question completely, but it, it wouldn't surprise me that some of these mares could get pregnant and then result in embryonic loss, right? Um, you know, especially when we start looking at these immunohistochemistry images and we're expecting billions of bacteria, but we're just seeing dozens of bacteria in these small colonies. You know, absolutely. Um, these bacteria go through different, depending on cell signaling pathways and kind of the environment surrounding them, um, if they're just sitting in a, a a state of low metabolic rate and they're not really growing, absolutely, that mayor probably could become pregnant. And then, depending on how the uterine environment's changing, and these bacteria going, boy, it's a pretty nice environment around us now. They start replicating more, causing more inflammation, resulting in embryonic loss.
1: Yeah. What 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 does the normal mare? What does she have for um, to to, to uh, defend herself against this? You know, in the immunocompetent mare, how are they more able to eliminate these types of infections?
2: Well not necessarily a yes and no. Um, so the immunocompetent mare never allows a biofilm to actually form, right? You know, the uterus gets exposed to bacteria. They, um, there's a, that, that bacteria presence is recognized quite quickly by the host immune system. And then is quite quickly cleared and eliminated. So those bacteria never are given the opportunity to come together into a biofilm state. Now, if you look at diseases in human medicine, and this is where I don't think every mare has a biofilm out there, right? Um, and that's because we're, the diseases we see this most commonly in human medicine, um, it's some sort of surgical implant or, or damage to the anatomy of, of, of the species. Um, cystic fibrosis would be a great example of it. That mucociliary function is, is broken down. Those patients um, suffer from repeated biofilm associated infections. Um, so, and, and then immunocompromised, uh, diabetes, uh, diabetic foot ulcers are, are notorious for biofilm associated infections. So, you know, I think we have to think about the mares and, and is there a reason why there's a biofilm? I think the average mare walking in, that's a relatively acute infection. It's not chronic, can be treated and probably does not involve a biofilm. Um, it's the, cushionoid equine metabolic syndrome mare um, has an infection that she's going to have a higher chance of having a biofilm associated infection. Um, the mare with a torn cervix that has lost that ability to help prevent bacteria from getting into her uterus. Um, the mare with poor perineal conformation that needs a castlick and, and other things, those mares are going to be at a higher risk of having a biofilm associated infection.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, and seeing those organisms deep in the glands, I mean, it's a great place to hide, right? Yeah, absolutely. Just pull a slime layer over yourself, absolutely. just sit there and be quiet. <laughs> and you're, you're you're right about the change in pregnancy, right? So all of a sudden there's inherent immune suppression to allow that pregnancy to establish and develop. And these guys are just going to be sitting there sort of thinking, oh, okay, everybody's gone now. Right. Time to come out. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's absolutely makes sense that this could be a cause of early embryonic loss because there's so many of them we can't explain. Right, yeah.
2: And especially when you think about, you know, we, before I left Colorado State, this was some goals of our program of uh, to look at, at reproductive isolates and do they behave the same as what we see in human isolates. But as we see this colony of bacteria forming, you know, and we have this biofilm, those bacteria will actually start to culture up a group of free floating bacteria as part of it and then actually release it off into the world when environmental conditions are correct. And it's kind of like seeding the rest of the uterus, if you will, or, or the tissue um, with more bacteria. Um, and we're really curious if the, the equine isolates behave the same as many of the human isolates in doing that. And so really that, that core group of bacteria, they're, again, their metabolic rates are extremely low. So they're quite well protected from both the host immune system for being recognized and, and our antibiotics for effectively clearing them.
0: So these colonies and these biofilms—they're not necessarily a uniform population of bacteria. Is there any sort of um, symbiotic sort of relationships between bacteria where they work together?
2: There definitely can be. Um, you know, these do not have to be be just clones of each other or just one species of bacteria. Um, they definitely can be mixed organisms and and whatnot. And and when we investigated them in vitro most of the time those are in pure colonies and and whatnot and and partly that's because we're trying to mimic what happens in the tissue which is a little hard and these bacteria will outcompete each other and and sometimes use other bacteria for energy sources so so it's but definitely in in true infections you know these are going to be mixed oftentimes they're not going to be just a a sole one genus and species
0: Because that could potentially make treatment, and we we would like to talk about that, that could potentially make treatment very difficult because you may have bacteria with wildly different sensitivity patterns cohabiting and you can't clean them out Is because there's always going to be somebody left standing.
2: Or potentially you isolate the Pseudomonas or E. coli from the isolate and you have some beta hemolytic strep left behind that you didn't even know existed. So you treated the marrow with a gram-negative spectrum of antibiotics and potentially just never treated the the beta hemolytic strep
0: so apart from the clinical appearance and and the uh, histological Mm -hmm. information you have um, that you've displayed how do you go about diagnosing I mean you've got clinical suspicion of course and and the things you mentioned that may be wrong to favor by a biofilm formation how do you actually prove that it is present
2: you know, there is not a diagnostic test currently available to truly prove that a biofilm is present, and, and that's in human medicine and in the horse. And there's a lot of researchers currently ongoing trying to find that that holy grail, if you will, of can we actually detect in vivo infections? Um, one of the exciting parts of, of this study here that um, I don't have the data for, but um one of the grad students who was working with us on this project, um, was looking at the metabolites or the cell signaling metabolites, um, cyclic diGMP, And that's really the cell signaling molecule that tells bacteria to go from a free floating planktonic state to a biofilm. And as long as cyclic diGMP GMP is present in high levels, these bacteria stay in a biofilm. And if you can take away cyclic diGMP, GMP, the biofilm will start breaking up at least in vitro. And, um, our, our group was the first ones to ever detect cyclic DGMP and, and clinical tissues. Um, up until then, it all had been in vitro based work. So, so that was really one of the exciting things that potentially down the road, there will be diagnostics available to us, but right now there's not. So, so what do we do in the meantime? Well, if, if I have a mare that presents to me that, has, that we detect an E. coli infection, we get a good antibiotic sensitivity, we pick an uh, appropriate antibiotic and we treat that mare with that antibiotic for an appropriate time frame. Um, and we feel that that should have clinically cleared that infection. And we reculture that mare and isolate E. coli. That mare is screaming to me that she has a biofilm present. Um, and that's, that's kind of the same rationale that they use in human medicine right now currently as well, is that um, failure of, a, of clearance of an infection with appropriate treatment.
0: Okay, so faced with that situation, what is your next move? You've treated appropriately for what you um, cultured, and you've come up with this E. coli. How do you approach the mayor then?
2: Yeah, so usually at that point, there what we need to do is start adding in. So as we were working through all of, do biofilms actually exist in the horse? We started looking into treatment options, and and that became quite difficult because the fact that if you just provide more antibiotics, these biofilm states are quite tolerant to antibiotics, even a thousand times increases of MICs to to kill these bacteria, well beyond what we can even put directly into a uterus. And so uh, some initial work looking at non-antibiotics suggested that we could disrupt these bacteria from a biofilm with non-antibiotics for a, a, a short time period, about a six-hour time period. And... Um, And then if we provided an antibiotic treatment after that, um, we could actually kill these bacteria um, that were previously in a biofilm state. So for a matter of about a month, we tried at Colorado State of doing this thing on these mares of treating them with a non-antibiotic in the morning and then coming back in the afternoon and and potentially lavaging their uterus and, and putting an antibiotic directly into their uterus. And after a month, we gave up because we went, this isn't clinically practical. We can't having this mare come up to the stocks three, four times a day for these treatments and breeding and everything else just wasn't practical. So then we got the idea of, could we mix non-antibiotics and antibiotics directly? And, and so we did a, a whole series of combinations and, and against different bacteria. This is two not, one non-antibiotic and, and antibiotic, but we, we have a whole series of data of different antibiotics and non-antibiotic compounds. Um, this happens to be against Pseudomonas, but again, we tested against E. coli, Klebsiella, and other species. So this graph here on the left, this is colony forming units. Um, we have our contamination control. So this well was never inoculated with bacteria. And the only reason I pointed out is that we would like our treatments to get back to our contamination control. That means we killed all the bacteria present in the well. We have an untreated treatment. We have a safety fear treatment. And a tris edta treatment, so an antibiotic and non-antibiotic compound. And you can see we're getting some killing with these, these compounds. Um, we get a two log decrease in, in bacterial numbers. So that's not bad. Um, but interestingly, when we merge an antibiotic and non-antibiotic together, we got complete eradication um, of all the culturable bacteria. And if we look at biofilm biomass, um, we have a contamination control Again, that's our target. That's what we want to get to our untreated control, what we start with. And then, Seftifier and, and Tris EDTA both cause some effect um, with that. And, but when we merge them together, we we're able to completely disrupt the, the bacterial biofilm biomass. So, that's kind of pushed treatments towards this combination therapy of a non antibiotic and an antibiotic at the same time. So, the goal is the non antibiotic is breaking up some of that biofilm. And then our antibiotics are present to kill those bacteria that are now um, able to be uh, treated effectively. Now, one key caution with that is is this next slide. So same organisms, same antibiotic, different non-antibiotic. So colony forming units, contamination control, untreated control, ceftifere, and this time acetylcysteine. We can see that both of them are killing the bacteria to some extent again. But when you mix acetylcysteine with ceftiafere, we get back to no significant difference from our untreated control. So we've lost that ability to actually kill bacteria at this point. We might as well be infusing saline in this mare. And say, the same thing with biofilm biomass, our untreated control, ceftiafere treatment, acetylcysteine treatment. Acetylcysteine breaks up biofilm beautifully by itself. But when it's present with an antibiotic, it's almost unaffected. So this led to this chart being published um, out of Colorado State. Um, this is a series of, of different antibiotics and non-antibiotics um, that can be mixed together effectively um, for treatment. So how I would do with this, mare that we just talked about for E. coli, I'd look down through my antibiotic sensitivity report, um, figure out what antibiotic would be sensitive to that, that Um, organism, pick an appropriate antibiotic, and then the non-antibiotic of choice that I might be able to use with that, um, make it up as as directed here and infuse it into that mare. And, you know, I I can't say from a research standpoint and statistical evidence, but anecdotally what I've seen since we've started adding in these non-antibiotic compounds with our, our antibiotic infusions is that those mares that just chronically had E. coli infections, and it took us three, four cycles to get that mare treated, those have kind of gone away now. Um, rarely do I see repeated infections in mares. Um, and if I do, it's usually a contamination issue of, of a cervical laceration that was missed or a, a, a perineal laceration, um, something like that that's, that's occurring. Um, so I think, you know, adding in these non-antibiotics has really been a game changer in clinical practice.
1: So are you adding those in, even if you don't have a suspicion that they have a biofilm? Is that just part of the routine <clears> of treating mares now?
2: I, I have moved to that because I, especially, I guess I should say if I had a, a young mare come in that has a simple, straightforward infection, I probably wouldn't add a non-antibiotic in. Um, and my Clinical practice, most of the time, the mares that for my program that have positive cultures, they already have concerns of equine metabolic syndrome. They're probably already on Cushing, they're already on Persend. Um They already have issues with fluid clearance and their mucociliary apparatus. So I'm already suspecting that that mare has a biofilm. So I'm probably much more quickly to jump to adding a non antibiotic into my infusions. Um, but that's also because of my clinical caseload. If I was probably out there just seeing a general smattering of mares, I probably would do it a little less often.
1: Yeah, is there is there a downside to doing it other than expense? Any risks?
2: You know, I think with some of these products, you know, um, Triss TA, I've never seen a, a negative reaction with, with that particular product. With hydrogen peroxide, we're recommending a 1% concentration. If you get the concentration above 1%, we do start to see some of these mares have I have a pretty profound inflammatory response. Um, Angus McKinnon, um, Dr. Angus McKinnon out of Australia, is the one who, who really pushed me with hydrogen peroxide early in my career. And, and he was very adamant that don't go above 1% um, or you're going to start to see some irritation in those mares. So, so I, I think with some of these other products, we potentially could see some issues. Um, DMSO for the concentration we had to use in the lab to be effective is a quite high concentration, 30%. I think that high of a concentration, I do see some irritation in MARE, so I don't use DMSO uh, regularly in my program. For me, um, Tris EDTA is is usually my go to uh, medication, and if that's not available, then hydrogen peroxide is my next non antibiotic.
1: And are you always lavaging those out 24 hours later, or do you just leave them in?
2: Um, Usually, it it depends on the MARE, um, Dr. Barbara. I know that's a, a poor answer, right? But, um, you know, I'll look at the mare. I'll look at the mare before we start the infusion. If she has more than a centimeter of fluid, or especially if there's a bunch of flocculent debris on ultrasound in that fluid, that mare will get a lavage before the first infusion. And then we'll typically ultrasound that mare prior to the next infusion. If, if her uterus is free of fluid and and is looking good, then we'll probably just do another infusion. Um, if she has excessive amount of fluid in her uterus or it has a lot of debris in it, we'll definitely lavage that mare's uterus again before before treating her. And, you know, and I think like anything, this isn't a silver bullet, right? This isn't going to treat everything. You got to look at the rest of the horse as well, right? Mm-hmm. You know, sure. um, you know, we're probably going to add in some ecbolics, um, either oxytocin or estromate to help these mares with uterine clearance. Um I really like to get these mares out in a, in a paddock um, to get some exercise or, or even on a panel walker and get some forced exercise and just help them with, with uterine clearance as well. So trying to establish those normal physiologies of how does the normal mare clear bacteria from their uterus as well.
0: And I think that's a really good point to bring out too, what you've just said, is that people just want that silver bullet or they just want to do one thing to fix everything. And, and this just really is a progression as you've explained it, of treatment from from other things that haven't worked that were reasonable that were done. And so, yeah, you're right. It's not going to fix everything if the basics aren't done right. And I really like that you brought out you got to look at the whole horse, not just the uterus, and that she has to be as healthy as possible for everything to fall into place.
2: Well, especially when we think about biofilms and chronic infections and stuff like that, right? Like we're going to see that in, you know, mares with, with – uh, Or perineal conformation, some sort of physical abnormality. If we don't treat that, she's going to be infected again the next cycle, guys, right? Like we can dump all the antibiotics and non-antibiotics in the world in her uterus and and it's not going to fix that. Um, Same thing of being cognizant of these mares of a um, equine metabolic syndrome or PPID. Um, Are we screening them and effectively treating them and giving them the support they need? If we don't do those things, they're just going to be back with another positive culture. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, that's excellent. Uh, anyway. Which I think
2: is hard, right? You know, I mean, like, I, I, I'll say in my clinical program, it's hard, right? Like, we breed a couple hundred mares a year up here in the Northwest. And, you know, there's some there's days like all of us that there's 100 mares in on the list of ultrasound. And so you've got to be moving, right, to be efficient that day. And and sometimes that's hard because the next mare walks in and, boy, it seems like all you did is lift the tail and look at the ultrasound screen. And, you know, I, I rely heavily on my assistants to point out things of, like, Hey, Dr. Ferris, um, this mare seems to have a crusty neck. Do you think we should screen her for PPID? Yeah, probably. Um, Hey, we were washing this mare up for our culture and she, you know, she's sucking air. She needs a castlet. Okay, like, let's do it. Like, I I rely on my staff heavily to help point out those things because otherwise in a busy practice, they're easy to mess.
0: Well, that's been fascinating, uh, Ryan. Um, it's great to have your take on biofilm. Again, when we're, we're looking for information on biofilm, your name pops up quite a lot. And so, <laughs> you know, you've done some great work in your, your research career and pretty exciting times over there with your practice at Summit Equine.
2: Yeah, it's been it's been really fun. It's really been fun seeing other groups latch onto this. I know um, there's starting to be some research in, in equine wounds and the role of biofilms and whatnot. in and really hoping that we just keep understanding this this you know concept a little bit more and what it is and what it's not right you know what I mean
0: mm-hmm.
2: if I was to put a list of differentials if somebody goes I have a problem there to send to you biofilm wouldn't be number one on my list of of problems right you know it it may be a role but boy it's probably going to be down more four or five or six or less on the, on the list there's going to be a lot of other problems higher up to start with that I'm going to want to rule out first. Before I jump on, this mare has a biofilm.
1: Yeah, and I think that's important because yeah. sometimes the, the new words get all the attention, and, and so we tip the balance a little bit. It's just it, it's part of the syndrome, or can be, but it doesn't. It's not always there. So yeah, it's a good point. And it's just exactly. mother.
0: It's just mother nature at work. These bacteria just are trying to survive and make a living, and our job is to right. stop that. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Great. Well, um, again, thanks, Ryan. It's been very informative, and uh, look forward to seeing you sometime soon.
2: Sounds good, thank you guys very much for having me and enjoy the rest of your day.
0: Yeah, thanks for being with us. And that was Stall Side for this week. We were with Dr. Ryan Ferris from Summit Equine, formerly from the Colorado State University uh, Veterinary Teaching Hospital, talking on the subject of biofilm in the mares uterus. See you next time.
1: Tall Side Podcast is brought to you by Rune Riddle Veterinary Pharmacy. As partners in your Animal's Healthcare, we strive to bring you the highest quality medications, including custom compounds, that are formulated and produced right here in our pharmacy. Along with medications, we also strive to bring you high quality and relevant information, such as that available here on the podcast. So if you like what you hear and see, be sure to refer us to your friends and remember to hit that like button and subscribe to our channel. We've done a lot of great episodes already that you may need to catch up on with more just around the corner. One last reminder nothing you here on the podcast should be construed as veterinary advice, which should only come from a veterinarian with whom you have a relationship.